1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Hello, I'm Natalia Shpulova-Said. I'm a host of New Books in Ukrainian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm delighted to speak today with Oksana Lutsyshina about her novel Ivan and Phoebe, translated from Ukrainian into English by Nina Murray and published in 2023 by Deep Vellum Publishing. Oksana Lutsyshina is the author of five poetry collections, one collection of short stories, and three novels. She's the recipient of several literary prizes, including the UNESCO Prize and the Shepchenko National Prize for Literature. In collaboration with Olena Jennings, Oksana is translating the works of the Ukrainian authors into English. Among the ones whose works she translated are Mariana Kianovska, Vasyl Mahno, Kateryna Kalitko, and Artem Chekh. Oksana Lutsyshyn is also an assistant professor at the University of Texas, Austin, and she teaches Ukrainian language and literature and East European cultures and literatures. Hello, Oksana, and thank you so much for joining me today. Hello, Um, my pleasure. Well, first of all, congratulations on the English translation of this novel, and I'm truly delighted that this wonderful book is available to Anglophone audiences now. So, the novel is packed with history, recent as well as distant. And while the main storyline includes the revolution on the granite, it is embedded into a wider historical context and one should be understood through the prism of the other. So, could we start with a brief introduction to the revolution on the granite? This is one of the events which is still not very well known outside Ukraine, but even in Ukraine, it is not mentioned very often when one speaks about Ukraine's road to independence, of course, outside the professional context.
1: Uh, thank you so much. Um, and thank you for your kind words. And yes, uh, I would be delighted to speak a little bit about that. And you're right, it is not an event that many people in Ukraine even know enough about. And I think it's because it happened. In nineteen, in the year of 1990, which was basically one of those very difficult transitional years. And uh, definitely before the advances of technologies that allowed people to document uh, later revolutions. And uh, that's one. And second, it was still subject to uh, Soviet silencing. Basically, when the revolution on the ground was happening for the first several days, the Soviet Union was carefully pretending that it's not happening. And basically, obstructing any news that would somehow uh, reach the outside world. And by outside world, I mean anything outside Kiev. So, people in Kiev knew, and people who would come to the Maidan Square knew which was that called differently, it was called the Square of October Revolution. And uh, uh, for example, my parents in Ushvarov, when I wrote the novel, they were uh, saying to me with surprise that. Uh, They did not remember this event described in newspapers, and they only had a very vague idea of it. And then the third reason why it is not as well known is we are still just only coming into this tradition of writing good nonfiction, numerous and very good nonfiction, I um, say. Because, you see, uh, my book is fiction, and it's, of course, fictionalizing say fictionalizing the account and, of course, changing the characters and most of the characters have names that i made up not the names that actually belong to the historical characters with some exceptions but usually the people i wrote about uh, closely were all you know not real people they were fiction and uh, it is absolutely necessary to write a good analytical non-fiction book about this and i think this tradition is still uh something that we are grasping with uh, grasping only now we are just still uh, coming to that. Uh, I know that a few of my friends who read the novel uh, were journalists at the time and they were carefully considering that perhaps writing a nonfiction book uh, about these events. Because in Ukraine so far the only things that were published were various interviews. Some of them excellent interviews taken by truly very professional journalists, but this is all scattered online. And uh, also uh, some books, but these books are mainly just a timeline of events and some photographs. There is no analysis and there is no uh, even a general description. And the only place where such description exists was actually in the book of letters of uh, Solomiya Fawliczko to down corruption.
0: And uh, the revolution on the Gratich was probably the first major revolution after particularly after the 1980s, right, which eventually led to the uh, um, Declaration of Independence in 1991. But there, then there were other revolutions, like the Orange Revolution and the Revolution on, uh, uh, of Dignity, that also took place on uh, Maidan the um, How would you describe the meaning of this revolution, for instance, to you as you were working on the novel? From what I understood
1: from the accounts and unfortunately my own memory here is no help because I was 15 at the time and from a provincial town where nobody was particularly political. Now, so I heard about the revolution, but, you know, the only lesson we took from it is we ran away from school that day and kind of celebrated the day of freedom, having zero idea about what is going on politically because... Uh, that depends on whether you and your family were told the truth about what Soviet Union is, and many people chose not to because that was dangerous. So, uh, and uh, uh, I think if we, uh, again, return to the account left by Solomia Pavlichko and saw the interviews that I have mentioned that are usually online, um, we can see that this is an unprecedented thing for the uh, city of Kiev and for the people of Kiev, and and again, I think it was a foundation for the other two revolutions. It was the revolutions. It was the same idea. First of all, it was just the idea of a kind of a public uh, display, public, uh, you know, uh, speeches and so on and so forth, which was exhilarating for a person from the Soviet Union to have something like that done out of your own initiative. Uh, whether it's personal or political, but within a different political group than the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, was unthinkable. It was a taste of freedom like no other ever before. And then also the fact that uh, Kievites united uh, around Maidan, and uh, eventually the workers of the factories would join, and lots of other people would join, Intelligentsia would join, writers would join. Uh, because such uh, literary figures as Oksana Zabushko, Ihor Ramaruk, they were all there as well. Uh, the artistic community, like you know, Nila Kruko was the actress, and so on and so forth. So uh, that again uh, inspired people like nothing else before that, and I think galvanized them. And, and uh, whoever saw that even as a child never forgot that. I have friends who later came forth and said, I was four when this happened, but I still remember what it meant for my parents, and I felt that we were part of something really big.
0: Uh, I can by feel some uh, preoccupation with history in this uh, novel, and um, uh, I would like to talk a little bit more about the genre of this novel, but in a little bit, but um, I'm um, really curious about what history represents in this case and why there is so much history in this novel i i think partially you already covered this uh, uh, question by saying that um uh, in the 1990s there were some attempts to somehow um talk about the political developments but uh, as you pointed out uh, those attempts were uh, quite um uh, minimum on the one hand and on the other hand it also takes some time to reflect on this history in order to um build further, right? This identification, um, either with the country or with the nationality or um, with with one with one's identity.
1: Yes, this is true, and I think we are still at the point where we're still discovering our history, uh, because uh, getting um, getting comfortable with this, this historic discourse is not it's not enough to just read the history once in one textbook. It takes a while. It takes a while to see uh, different accounts, different viewpoints, and kind of construct it from different pieces. Because sometimes we can see the historical event, but we do not see its ramifications. Uh, I'll give you an example. It's not about the 1990s, but it's about something else. When I read, the, um, for the first time, Anne Applebaum's book on the Red Famine, uh, I was struck by how she quotes the accounts of people who... Were saying that one of the worst things was that people could not really bury their dead properly and that thought tortured them because it was a hit for their on their religious consciousness and their cultural identity and i would never have thought about that because again we are people who you know uh, who take it all anachronistically. we were all brought up in an atheist country we all uh, already read accounts of world war ii where many people were not buried and probably still aren't and most likely will not be because they were not you know can't find them anymore Um, but uh that this this kind of cycle you know this this left right was very important to people so and i guess if we look at the 1990s uh the first impression that we all see is that Oh, this was the time of this, uh, you know, great changes, which usually meant somebody becomes really rich and somebody becomes really poor and life becomes really difficult. And people don't necessarily see what's hidden behind it, that there actually was an idea hidden behind it or more likely a set of ideas. We're so used to, uh, you know, perceiving these years as, Uh, just these changes that have nothing to do with history that are somehow ah ahistoric. this is what Bruno Schulz would call something like wild Klondike right it's uh, you know business as the beginning of business Uh, actually the denial of any idea saying like oh this you know we we don't need ideas to build a country we just need some you know funds or money or goods and whatnot but all of that is superficial we are still at the point of Um, discovery and rediscovery of many of our decades of history that we were not taught and that we were prevented from knowing.
0: And yeah, and um, there were some episodes in uh, in your book that um, uh, somehow hint at those who had to leave uh, Ukraine in search of job opportunities abroad and of course it brought a whole range of other issues like broken families or estranged parents and of course abandoned children which also somehow contributed not only to the political and socio-economic situation in the country but also psychological and um, identity formation as well particularly for children who on the one hand probably were receiving some money from their parents but on the other hand they probably Um, lost something as well in terms of their connection to their uh, parents. That's true, Uh, but I would
1: also uh, like us to remember that this whole idea of a family is also a bit of a fiction for us because uh, what a family should be ideal, I would imagine, it's some kind of a unity of people and trust. And people, uh, as as actually I'm going to quote Victoria Miller in one of her essays, uh, the writer was just killed by Russian missiles in the city of Kramatorsk. Uh, if you uh, don't have these uh, true facts that you can exchange, if you are not living in these truths, you cannot trust each other. So people, uh, people can be a family seemingly, but they don't have that important connection of one to another. Um, and uh, I remember Oksana Zabushko once called the time of uh, of Maidan and other such transformations as a time of great collective joy and i was thinking that this is a very accurate description uh either as a family or as a community we we unlearned or we never learned my generation for example to feel this collective joy because wherever you were inside a collective that usually meant that there will be some eulogy to the communist party pronounced and um people feel things even children feel things you know it's not true on some very important level you know it's just a bunch of lies so instead of collective joy, you experience collective shame. And you don't even realize that that's what you're experiencing. So in that sense, I think our families were robbed of that. And actually, when I read the uh, uh, Ukrainian literature with my students here in the United States, and again, they helped me to see something that I didn't necessarily see because I'm so used to this. Uh, they were saying, uh, how come the only normal family in all your literary process is uh, Ivan Bahrian's uh, uh, which is the hunted and the hunters uh, or you could say tiger catches if we transited directly but I'm just going off with what the translators suggested uh, well and that family actually lives isolated from others in the wilderness by hunting so they don't interact with the Soviet Union and everything that touched the Soviet Union becomes thwarted dead uh, separated mutilated, killed by hunger, by wars, by propaganda, by so on and so forth. And actually, there is a huge alienation that's happening. So I think when the 1990s came and people were able to, as you said, move around the country, uh, these separations were finally uh, obvious for one reason. We were finally allowed to talk about them. Because if somebody's family member was in the gulag, you couldn't mention it. You had to live with that pain. Just on your own or within your family, but not not really share it with anybody else. So I think it's actually a positive thing that that topic uh, was finally, um, you know, spoken about. And then as for the separation of uh, you know diaspora and the metropoli metropolitan well whatever you call it uh, that's uh, that's another big <laughs> big huge issue that happened again because of, of the Soviet regime that that kind of destroyed
0: these families and separated them by the Iron Curtain. Mm -hmm. Well, the novel um, is very textured, I would say. And I mean that it combines a lot of genres. And we touched a little bit upon this genre identification of the novel. Historical novel, love story, detective story to some extent, psychological novel. And there are elements of an adventure story as well. There are a lot of folklore elements. And additionally, the description of the landscapes is mythic and magical. And uh, we largely moved away from clearly defining genres. But uh, how do you um, see them as part of literary processes in Ukraine and abroad today?
1: Uh, when I was writing it, I, I wasn't really thinking about uh, that. But I guess it's just that uh, not so much on the level of the genre, but on the level of the technique. If we are talking about literature proper, which... You're correct. These days, very few people actually do that. And I am myself sometimes doubting myself, uh, asking myself, what am I doing here? This is, the, <laughs> this is the, the time that, you know, where fiction somehow doesn't fit because so many things are happening at once. And it's very hard to even get hold of reality, let alone an imaginary world. Uh, but I would say more like a historical novel, as much as it's possible, um which allows me to uh, just sort of follow life naturally more or less um yeah, and uh, as for the technique that I mentioned I uh, I suppose I do try to make the plot somewhat you know dynamic and moving because uh, when I myself was growing up, I grew up reading things that were not written for children we need, we didn't know what young adult was, right my generation and Maybe yours to some extent. Uh, it's well, it was you know all these horrible stories about pirates and you know three musketeers and all those things that had no decent role models for a young girl, for example. But we still read that, so maybe that that's the thing that transpiring and some sort of adventure elements there.
0: In the novel, the individual is part of history. And um, the individual also constitutes part of the environment, part of nature in the broadest sense of this word. Uh, characters such as Magrita represent the inherent connection not only with the culture that, in many ways, defines the way. Um, one perceives life but also with the land and the land where they were born and the land that gives birth and that takes lives so what's the role of land in your work and um you uh, mentioned that oh, this image of family um is kind of structuring probably for the entire novel uh, but i would also say um that the image of land as well as river uh, somehow contributes to how the entire work is Uh, structured and how the entire work, I would say, moves as well. Thank you. I used to have dreams that I am
1: floating in the river Ush as some sort of a fish or something and seeing this transparent water. Uh, But now I don't have dreams anymore. I suppose I lived outside of Ushara for too long. So we always dream about the landscape that we see and kind of it reinforces itself. So, um, uh, yes, and actually the land that I am talking about in the novel is uh, Transcarpathia, which is this area of Ukraine that is beyond the Carpathian Mountains. It's on the border with Hungary, Slovakia, Romania, a little bit of Poland. It's kind of like it's all a little saying because it's such a mixture of different nationalities and cultures. And uh, uh, in Ukrainian, it is called Sribna Zemlya, which translates as silver land. So, uh, and uh, it's, a, it, you know, to me, Transkopedia is this example of great resilience of ukrainian even in the situation where this piece of land belonged belong to different countries and regimes. Uh, we used to have people who never left their village and somehow managed to live in five countries, Austro-Hungarian Empire, Czechoslovakia, Hungary, then Soviet Ukraine, and then independent Ukraine. So, um, and uh, also uh, as any frontier, and this idea of frontiers and borderlands is kind of something that people analyze a lot, literary studies and in historic studies right now. Uh, But this idea of a frontier uh, mainly means that uh, your connection to the land becomes strong in a very material uh, and very physically tangible ways because you know regimes come and go but your plot of land is something you can always rely on Uh, and moreover you sometimes don't even want to know which regime is you know in power because that would mean that you will perhaps be forced into some kind of political things that may not agree with you necessarily Uh, but your land you can always give yourself to your land you can always keep that connection so in that sense uh, Ivan's mother, Margita, is a representation of that mentality, that great love for her plot of land. She's actually half Hungarian, half Slovakian, but this woman uh, also speaks perfect Ukrainian and eventually is like again ardent Ukrainian uh, defender of Ukraine, so to say. But everything for her usually starts with something very tangible.
0: I would say that the novel also has a very complicated and detailed uh, cultural canvas. There are a lot of dialects, as um, you already pointed out. There are a lot of locally specific elements, such as food and clothes, customs and prejudices. And um, in a way, the novel opens up these complexities of the region that emerges at the crossroads of many cultures, Hungarian, Ukrainian, and Russian uh, to some extent as well. Uh, There are different shades of these cultures, like Hungarian in Hungary is different from Hungarian in Ukraine and Ukrainian in Lviv and Uzhorod is different from Ukrainian in Kyiv. And there are some interesting uh, episodes of this uh, in the book. Uh, But this is a world in which we grew up as well. Uh, Would you talk a little bit about this... uh, uh, about this cultural diversity that uh, includes your novel and uh, how it defines Ukraine uh, in general. Would you would you say that this cultural, uh, cultural uh, diversity is a key to understand Ukraine? And I'm saying this for this reason because uh, now, well, there is a lot of conversation about what Ukraine is, but uh, unfortunately sometimes the conversation again narrows down to Ukrainians are people who speak Ukrainian in the first place, or Ukrainians are people who like some certain foods, and if they don't like some certain foods, then they cannot be uh, called real um, Ukrainians. So, uh, but- for this reason, again, as I um, as I shared with you privately, um, I'm really very impressed with the novel and I really believe that it can be used for not only literature courses or even translation courses, but for cultural courses because it really opens up so many influences and not just influences, but also these elements that actually make up uh, Ukraine. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much
1: for this question. And it's indeed a very interesting question. And I know that uh one thing that I can say that as a linguist, that among linguists is considered that the more dialect language had, the more vitality it had. That kind of shows that there's different groups speaking at different places. And uh, in this sense, uh, yeah, I think we definitely have that diversity within Ukraine. Uh, just like we have this uh, different ornaments on our embroidered shirts, that actually each ornament means something. There, you know, we kind of identify uh, what re- region a person is from uh, just looking at the embroidery of their shirts. And uh, and uh, as for the other nations and, and ethnic communities living in Ukraine, that's a trick question. That. Uh, as we all know and you uh, know as well that uh, Russian propaganda sometimes likes to use and say like well, well, Russians are such an important part of Ukraine and we should have Russian as the second state language and so on and so forth so uh, yeah, so I think when we are talking about diversity we have to separate uh, this kind of propaganda stocked from the actual diversity that exists and uh, uh, considering that uh, Russian was such a for such a long time uh, was a language of colonial domination but it it will have to uh, not be on the forefront of our choices right now and and uh as for uh the other national minorities uh that's a different story because uh, i think right now finally maybe for a while well, the uh, first times perhaps in our newest history we have novels dedicated to Crimea. we have people who study uh, crimean tatar language which i have never seen being done when i for example was growing up the soviet union was this huge country that spoke russian and everybody else was somehow um, just uh, you could see the diversity only during you know a yearly demonstration of uh, national dances uh, where dancers would you know present in their national costumes but uh, never have you had a, a a friend or a neighbor that would actually study one of these languages that are not the dominant Russian and so on and so forth. So, so I think uh, that uh, that's a very healthy tendency. And again, uh, since we are touching uh, upon Hungary, for example, that there's some political speculation on uh, on the part of Orbán, and everybody knows that too. That that's. Um, a, a kind of a difficult neighbor, and I don't mean the Hungarian people, we, you know, we have friends in Hungary and so on and so forth. But I mean the political process and how it has always considered the Transcapedia sort of like a part of Hungary and uh, tried to give people Hungarian passports and just basically claimed the
0: land, even though it's politically not part of Hungary at all. Well, when, um, Speaking with authors of uh, novels, I always try to avoid any kind of details in terms of the novel plots because I don't want to uh, spoil and ruin readers' experience with the book. I just want to ask one question, one specific question about one of the episodes in the novel. So there is uh, old paikosh and he's dying and he's speaking with I- uh, Ivan Ivan. And there is this conversation in which Paikos asks him about his relationship with his wife, and he's concerned about their family life. And then, um, by the end of the conversation, uh, he um, uh, tells Ivan to take care of them, but. Uh, prior to this phrase, he sa- he asks him about Ukraine and he says that he knows that he stood up for Ukraine and he respects that, but he should take care of Ukraine and his wife and then the next phrase is keep them safe. And we never know what he meant. Did he mean Ukraine or did he mean his, uh, Ivan's wife and his daughter? And you don't have to uh, just solve this uh, riddle for us, uh, but... The uh, answer can go anyway, but still it will change our perception of the novel completely. Thank you
1: so much for such uh, uh, remarkable attention to details. and uh, that's true. Uh, and uh, it's actually show like it's supposed to show that uh, somebody like like old Paikos is a very complex character. On the one hand, he's used to be, uh, you know a director of some kind of factory so it's like he had to be a communist he had to be part of the communist party he had to he had to play the game right he had to be all the to check all the boxes you know that he is of a good origin though in transcopadia i don't know about the good origin proletariat origin considering that it was only annexed to the soviet union after world war ii so there's living memory there's people who who are still alive even to this very day? Who remember the times before the Soviet Union, which Soviets never liked. So on the one hand, he checks all these communist boxes, right? And uh, if you check all these communist boxes, you were not supposed to be a champion of Ukraine. Mm-hmm. You were supposed to be a champion of Soviet Union. Um, and in that sense, like I can remember the old generation uh, of people in my life and in my family. Say, my grandfather, who also checked all the boxes. Uh, but he literally, the man refused to speak Russian, and uh, whenever needed. I mean, he could, but because he, won, he was part of the Soviet army and you know fought in World War Two, but still, and uh, that was not usual. That was something that uh, that kind of showed that you are basically opposing the regime whichever way you can, despite the fact that you are a communist and in other ways you know subscribe to supposedly everything. So the same is Pykos. He uh, he still has family memory of how his uh, brothers fought uh, during the short period of Carpathian Ukraine in 1939, uh, right when uh, some of the provinces of Transcarpathia were transferred and given to to Hungary, to Hungarian, at that point, fascist regime by Horthy, uh, by the Czechs left. Uh, and we all know what happened in World War Two, So, and, uh, he, so Pykus remembers that, and on, on, on some level, he loves Ukraine, he's its champion, but then he's also a Soviet feminist. Now, by the time of his death, uh, it's already the 1990s, so technically that time is over, but you know, as I can see now, uh, when I look at myself, times change, but it doesn't mean that
0: we change quite as fast. Mm-hmm. That's true. Yeah, um, and, uh, because of these complexities, Phoebe somehow makes it to the title. <laughs> the plot primarily revolves around I- Ivan, Ivan, but still Phoebe is always there. But again, I don't want to disclose all the details of a very, uh, I would say captivating story and all other women with whole uh, Ivan has some relationship as well. And what Phoebe might present in terms of our um, earlier uh, family um, conversation. Uh, yeah, so uh, well, basically, um, uh,
1: different critics and readers pointed that out. Some in a kind of feeling a little bit disappointed that Phoebe was not uh, featured in the novel um, a little bit more. But uh, on my end, this was a very conscious strategy. I mean, she does feature. You just have to hear it. Just like you really have to look and listen if you want to hear a woman's voice in our society sometimes. And I don't just mean Ukraine. I mean in any society. Because despite all the advances of feminism, I don't think that this, uh, you know, this struggle is is over. We we see this daily in the United States because for example, uh, reproductive rights, you know, and uh, and glass ceiling, and in Ukraine it's definitely glass ceiling and a bunch of other things. But sort of stereotypes that uh, what a woman should do, what a man should do, and so on and so forth. So, in that sense, Phoebe is a um, kind of a performative way to show this is what a woman's life is. And if you really pay attention, um, perhaps uh, it will reveal itself to you. I do realize that, you know, people, uh, you know, especially nowadays, with leadership being uh, kind of, I mean, we are all... Uh, sort of uh trained by incessant, you know, T V series and everything where they explain and explain and explain and explain. So anything that's too cryptic, too arcane, uh too inconspicuous, uh it, it is a risk. It may not be noticed, but I felt like I will take that risk because otherwise what I what I plan to
0: say. Be a lie. Mm-hmm. Well that's what made me read this novel just within two, three days, because I really couldn't put it down. Um, So speaking about uh, Ivan, uh, he really uh, throws himself into the um, revolution and he was quite active. But then um, further developments are quite, well, maybe disappointing for him or to him when he also reconnects or uh, encounters his friends with whom he was on um, on that uh, Maidan, and then uh, things didn't quite develop the way probably they would uh, imagine they should have developed. Would you say that there is some sort of uh, defeat, some sense of defeat, or maybe that's not quite about that defeat, but about all these difficulties that probably we should have anticipated when we voted for independence and it was quite a natural process for a country that just acquired this independence and maybe we were too hard on ourselves to expect that things would be just very light and easy and euphoric but uh, in fact independence did bring freedom and this potential for democracy but on the other hand it also brought um some struggle, ongoing struggle and fight for survival, I would say, in terms of democratic values. But it's quite natural. There is nothing that is quite depressing about it.
1: Um, Yeah, uh, it's a great question. And uh, I also uh, feel like this is partly because of the nature of the 1990s. We are still coming to terms with that decade. It's probably one of the most Arcane and complicated decades in the life of Ukraine, um, because uh, just like you said, on the one hand, people feel like, okay, we fought for independence, in Ukraine, now we have it. On the other hand, there's a sense of disappointment because suddenly politics doesn't go the way we think it should. Business doesn't go the way we think. Life doesn't go the way we think. Uh, it should have gone. And yes, it's partly because the uh, to the not written, we really had no idea how such processes happen in history. Uh, I think Soviet people were incredibly naive in many ways. And somehow, you know, the fact that uh, we had to spend so much effort and talent on opposing the regime, now that regime fell, people just didn't necessarily know what to make of it, how to apply yourself to the uh, you know, the process of making this new society bad. And I'm just talking about, you know, not politicians, I'm just talking about that and uh, and around the average citizen who who has a sense of justice and who wants to have Ukraine independent but he doesn't understand or she what that means and how to how to be part of that political body, not just, you know, uh as Soviet totalitarian citizen that who had no right. I mean we supposedly voted, but we voted for the only candidate that was running. So you can hardly call it election in the democratic sense of the of the word. But uh suddenly you have to make these choices and sometimes they're made for you because there's also going to be someone who's trying to take advantage of you and the politics is gonna uh come uh, and and uh, so I think what how people perceive the nineteen nineties is very much sort of that last point like even now. And my generation used to call itself the sort of the lost generation because our youth um somehow coincided with that unfortunate decade. And that meant just a lot of struggle for survival rather than
0: anything else. <laughs> and uh well, thank you. Thank you so much for this novel again, Well of uh, Sunning and uh, uh, I take this novel as an invitation to reflect on the 1990s. And um, I would recommend this novel to everyone uh, who would like to understand Ukrainians today and who would like to understand what Ukrainians are fighting for today against uh, Russia's aggression. Because it really opens up this very uh, um, deep right desire for. Freedom and for sovereignty as well. But on the other hand, it's also about dignity and it's also about solidarity, because I think that's something that we didn't mention about the revolution on the granite, that it also created the sense of solidarity, uniting um, Ukrainians living in different parts uh, of the country. So thank you so much again for, for the novel. And again, congratulations on the translation uh, in Nina and excellent translation. And I'm really very really happy that this book is available in English. And again, I look and I, I encourage, I encourage um, our academic world to use this book not only in literature courses, but in cultural courses and even in history courses. Because, as you mentioned, uh, of course, many names are not real, but there are a lot of real names. And that section that uh, describes the uh, um, the revolution on the granite really has a lot of real names, politicians, artists, singers, bands, and it can be some fun to, f- for students to explore what all those names mean and uh, who they were, who they are. So that would be quite a, uh, quite an exploration of Ukrainian history, culture, and political life. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you for interviewing me. Today I spoke with Oksana Natsishina about her novel. Ivan and CB translated from Ukrainian into English by Nina Mori and published in 2023 by Deep Bound Publishing. Thank you for listening to New Books in Ukrainian Studies at Podcast Channel on the New Books Network.